0: Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast.
1: Elliot Pellman is the author of three novels and a collection of short stories. His debut novel Three Dollars was published in 1998 and won the Age Book of the Year Award as well as the Betty Trask Prize. It was later adapted into a film by Elliot and director Robert Connolly and was released in 2005. His collection of short stories titled The Reasons I Won't Be Coming was published in 1999. It received the Stillwright Award for Best Australian Short Story Collection for 1999 and was a bestseller in the United States where it was also awarded Editor's Choice in the New York Times Book Review. His second novel, The Seven Types of Ambiguity was published in 2004 to international critical acclaim and was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. It was a national bestseller in France and America. His third novel, The Street Sweeper, was published in 2011. A social commentary tour de force, the narrative involves an ensemble of vivid characters and explores the civil rights movement in America and the Holocaust, specifically the horrors of Auschwitz. It was one of the most anticipated releases of Australian fiction last year. Okay, so Elliot, tell me about your latest book.
2: Okay, well, it's a, it's a novel called The Street Sweeper, and... Um, because it's such a big fat beast of a thing it, it, can, it might seem hard to to describe the plot um, but I'll, I'll have a go at describing the plot rather than talking about the themes in abstract because uh, well that might sound a bit abstract uh, too abstract so the, I, I guess um, there are two narrative arcs mainly uh, for the in the street sweeper, and the first of them deals with an African American janitor who has been um he's served a term of six years' imprisonment for a crime he didn't commit and he is desperate to find his daughter, a little girl who is now eight and he hasn't seen her since she was two or two and a half and he manages and he thinks he's terribly fortunate to get chosen to be the first ex-convict in a pilot program at a hospital, a cancer hospital in Manhattan called Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre. And if he can survive six months probation there, he'll get to keep the job with various benefits and entitlements. And if he can do that, he's in a much better position to, uh, you know, from, from which to find his daughter, but also to try and find a place for him in working-class America as opposed to the underclass homeless people, which is what he's terrified of falling into. And on day four of his probationary period, he meets an elderly man, a patient who is a Jewish Holocaust survivor and actually a survivor of the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp and they end up swapping stories, and it's this um, uh exchange of stories that's gonna have a profound effect on both of them, but particularly on the African-American janitor, whose name is Lamont. Now, that's strand one, and strand two uh, occurs just a few kilometers up the road, slightly to the west, uh, at Columbia University, and in the surrounding area, Uh, Of Manhattan called Morningside Heights and there we find an Australian historian who is untenured and he's terrified that uh, you know with with good reason that he's going to lose his job because um, he hasn't written anything new for five years and so he's not going to get tenure and because he's so certain of this professional doom he unilaterally ends A wonderful romantic relationship with a woman he's been with for years. She's a woman that would like to marry him and have a child with him and he's so certain that he's going to be unemployed that he thinks he should end the relationship and give her a chance to meet somebody else with better prospects than him and have a child with that person before it's too late. And the area in which he has some expertise The area of history is the history of the civil rights movement in the US and these two narrative arcs are going to come closer and closer together as we weave in and out of the present and the past going through mid-century Chicago to um, uh, American uh, labor relations for the meat workers in Chicago. Black and white labor relations, uh, black and Jewish um, relations, in, in the present and in the uh, in the in, in the 20th century, and also to the Holocaust in Europe and pre-Holocaust Europe, and even a little while in Australia, and we go back and forwards in time, and all of this, though it might sound unlikely now, will eventually meet up the two narrative strands will eventually
1: meet up. Mm -hmm. I mean, often people ask where the idea of a book came from, but that's multiple (laughs) big ideas. How did those ideas come together into one story for you?
2: Um, uh, Again, I apologize, Rose, most of my answers, I'll try to make them shorter, but there isn't isn't a really short answer. The the beginning of the answer to that um, very good question is, Where I was living, I was living in New York, and um, the first place I lived in New York was immediately opposite Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Manhattan. And, you know, we're used to hearing that um, New York is a microcosm of the world in that you have pretty much representatives of every kind of people and, uh, you know, nationally, ethnically, racially, um, educationally in terms of diverse interests, they're all there in New York. Well, this hospital, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, takes up a city block in Manhattan, and it is in a sense a microcosm of New York. And because I was living directly across the street uh, from the hospital, which is very far on the east side of Manhattan, and I was living on York Avenue, um, which is virtually on the East River, and in order to get anywhere west, other than by cab or, or by walking, you had to take a bus. And the nearest bus to me that was going to take me to the west side was directly outside the hospital. So I spent a lot of time waiting for buses outside the hospital. And there I got to see this um, mass of teeming humanity Um uh, groups of completely disparate people, people that you would never expect to meet, um, people that you would never expect to meet each other, and they would meet each other. Patients would be brought down onto the sidewalk for a breath of New York air, and uh, staff members, uh, not just the medical staff but also the administration staff, the you know janitorial staff, the people involved in providing the food delivery people. Um, educational people because they had a library there, fundraising people. All of these people would come out for a break. Plus, the visitors, the the patients had you know friends and families who would come and uh, uh, visit them. And because the patients came from all over the world, so did the friends and family. And I would see them talk to each other because they're in a fairly confined space, and all of them were under some kind of duress, as you can imagine. And there arose one of those, uh, I suppose you would call tantalising questions. What if an unlikely friendship were to blossom between two people who should never really statistically have met? And I chose those two people to be uh, Lamont, the African-American ex-con janitor looking for his daughter, and the elderly Jewish Holocaust survivor. And there you you see them come together as early as part one of the novel. And that, in a sense, was the starting point
1: for The
2: Street Sweeper.
1: Sure. And did the idea evolve much as you were writing it or did you go in with the story mapped out and planned? Um, It
2: it pretty much, um, I pretty much had it uh, mapped out. Uh, one, because it, it's such a complex story, I felt I needed to. But two, I guess it's, you know, part of my personality um, to be, what, um, to be anxious and to be anal retentive and to think that this story is going to take me years to write. And look, I mean, I felt pretty much the same way about Seven Types of Ambiguity. And um, really all the stories, maybe even some of the short stories in The Reasons I Won't Be Coming, I need to know the ending before I get too far into them because there's always a danger. Um, You know, you often hear writers say, um, well, I created these characters or somehow the characters found me and then they led me by the ear to the end of the novel and really um, they controlled me, I didn't control them. I think sometimes that's true when you hear authors say that, but a lot of times it probably isn't true. And certainly in my case, I couldn't do that because I'm so terrified that I'd spend years working on the book um, and I'd get to the end of the story and realize that there were maybe one or two or possibly three possible endings. And what would I do if none of those endings satisfied me? I'd be horrified because I'd wasted years of my life getting to that position. So in order to try and... um, Ensure against that eventuality, that possibility. I um, I need to plan it fairly meticulously, and yeah. um, because of the, the the degree the 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 research that um, the quantity of research that this book required, I had to plan it really quite carefully because mm. this book required um, more research than the previous all of the three previous three books put together.
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my I'm, I don't know if all of the copies of The Street Sweeper have it, but my copy of The Street Sweeper comes with a fairly lengthy bibliography, which uh-huh. is unusual in a fiction book. Yeah. Tell me, why is the research so important to you?
2: Look, I think because the, the novel deals with two such important historical uh, events or phenomena, namely the civil rights movement in the US and the Holocaust in Europe, um, I felt a tremendous sense of obligation to try to um, pursue the whole task with all the rigor of a historian you know I'm not a historian um but I so wanted to get the facts right in an attempt to a do justice to the story b do justice to the victims and c um to either remind readers of things they might have forgotten or, in some cases, to tell them things they didn't know at all. And, um, you know, it's a little bit daunting to take those historical events on yourself, but uh, the way I look at it is that it's hard enough to write anything. You know, it really is. So you may as well write something that's important to you and... um, the themes of social justice and, and you know, um, writing against racism and xenophobia and anti-Semitism are so important to me that um, I knew sooner or later they would emerge in a book. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't until my fourth book that they came out, but um, I really wanted to get it right.
1: Yeah. I mean, part, sections of The Street Sweeper really delve into the horror of Auschwitz. Yeah what was your motivation there and what was it like to write those sections
2: Um, well my motivation was really um, I I think a lot of people including well-meaning people and including even well-meaning Jews uh, children or grandchildren of either survivors or the generation of survivors all of these people think that they know about the Holocaust because they're saturated. In fact, most, many, many people in the Western world are, I don't know, maybe oversaturated in the imagery, the iconography of the Holocaust. They've seen the images of um, uh, emaciated prisoners in those striped pajama-looking uniforms, and they've seen the emaciated bodies when they're, you know, almost skeletons but just moving or they've seen the bodies uh, being bulldozed into pits and it's so horrific that they think that's the Holocaust it's horrible I've seen it I know about it I don't need to know anymore let's move on in fact while they are saturated with the imagery they're completely starved largely ignorant of the very facts you know, what really happened? And, you know, for me, I think it's important that people know what happened. Uh, I mean, I have a personal reason for that because of my family connection. I'm Jewish and my grandparents, uh, came to Australia in the late 20s to escape anti-Semitism and they lost pretty much everyone. And had they not come to Australia, you know, we wouldn't be talking now. And I feel you know the personal uh, responsibility to to try to tell people what happened, and the other responsibility with respect to the Holocaust is um, not even as a Jew or as as the family member, the descendant of people that perished, but just as a human being, because the Holocaust is really the the gold standard of civil rights abuse, and and if you if you know enough about it, then you can be warned. Of everything else, you know, it, it it acts as a beacon to to show us the depths to which uh, our species can go. And then, when you come to the civil rights movement, I was brought up to regard the civil rights movement really a, a, as a kind of um, contemporary or modern chapter in the history of the Enlightenment. You know mm-hmm. that 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 uh, movement. Where in our species, although we take, you know, two steps back, we do take one step forward every now and then. And that step forward is this attempt to rid ourselves of irrational prejudices and to see things clearly without the distortion of bias against people, uh, you know, on the basis of, of their skin color or where they're from or their nationality, ethnicity or religion, um, or, or sexual preference. And, you know, this is this being the civil rights movement is unequivocally a, a good news story because while race is still important in the United States and uh, people that might, you know, be categorized as people of color, particularly African Americans, do statistically have a harder time of life in, in the U.S., even in the 21st century, um, the fact remains that you can't ignore the progress that was made in this area um, in the second half of the 20th century. And it, it's, it's a shining example of what we can do as a species. When you look at the, the ingenuity and the uh, tenacity and the bravery of this group of oppressed people and what they're able to achieve initially by changing the law, and then by testing the law and, uh, you know, really calling the rest of America to, to live up to its ideals, it's, it's, it's unequivocally a, a good story. So uh, particularly because I was living in the U.S., I thought, OK, maybe it's time for me to try even to tell that story as well. And um, so that's a, another long-winded answer, Rose, to your question as to what was my motivation um, second part of your question, if I'm recalling correctly, um, is uh, how, did, how did I do it or how did I get through it? Um,
1: yeah, and what was it like to write?
2: About Auschwitz.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, it, look, it was difficult, um, but I was, you know, it's emotionally difficult and, and you, you have to marshal the information. I interviewed a lot of people, uh, a lot of survivors, and I read a hell of a lot, and I went to Auschwitz six times. In order to, um, as much as possible, immerse myself in not just the information, but the landscape of the place. Because to write about it uh, unflinchingly is such a daunting task mm. that I felt I needed to do this. And, um, there were times when, yeah, it, you know, it, 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 it would grind me down, but then I would think, I have no right to be, um, uh, I don't know, self-indulgent about it. When I think of the people that were there, uh, I I have to suck this up and and do my job and tell the truth about what happened. And um, that's how I got myself through it with, um, uh, you know, kind of with um, self-loathing that, you know, how dare I be so weak to flinch when... This is nothing compared to what the victims experienced. I think that's how I got through
1: it. Yeah. I mean, all of your books tackle big social issues, and you mentioned that sooner or later you knew you were going to tackle the idea of racism and social inequality. Mm. Do you start your writing with an issue, or does it emerge as you write?
2: Um, I certainly don't start off thinking... um, okay today i'm going to critique economic rationalism and you know tomorrow it'll be uh you know the prison system or uh, the stock market or anything like that but i I suppose um somehow um, you know we we're, we're drawn to the things that interest us if if you you know if you really want to take your own writing seriously and I suppose all of that sort of material does interest me, um, leaving aside political labels, I guess, because I was so brought up in a kind of humanist tradition. And so, uh, you know, it's not necessarily something I mean to do, um, but it is something I tend to do. In the same way as, um you know, you're probably unlikely to read the description of a sunset in any of my books but you will get um i don't know the the emotional states of people in situations of duress and and those situations of duress while they they could be caused by you know romantic hardship they could easily also be caused by um socioeconomic difficulties or um one kind of injustice or another
1: sure when you're weaving a story with social commentary through it like all of yours have been, do you consider that message aspect separately to your narrative? How do you balance the story so it doesn't come across too strongly well
2: uh, look there there are probably i shouldn't say probably there are certainly there are some readers, some critics who think that I have failed to get that balance right and um to, to a certain extent, it, it's a question of judgment. And for some people, I might have been too heavy-handed on the message. And for other people, um, you know, I don't know, I'm maybe too light or maybe I've got it just right. Or some parts of some books are too much one way or too much the other. Um, it, it's definitely something I'm aware of because for all that I have these various beliefs, uh, the story has to come first. I, I strongly feel that because um, you know you might you might even agree with my views before you pick up the book, um, but if I hit you over the head with it, you're going to have a sore head and you're not going to like it. Um, yeah. Also, if I um, if I can't get you to turn the pages, then um, you know I could have the most beautiful ethical message but it's going to be completely wasted because you don't want to read it. Um, I don't think that um, for literature to be great, it has to have a social message by any means. But I think that when it does, it's no bad thing. And it might well be, I don't know, a little unfashionable at the moment to write things with any kind of message because you run the risk of wearing your heart on your sleeve and I don't know, anytime you do that, you know, it's the same in personal relationships. You're you're um you you meet somebody, um, you know, someone of the opposite sex, if you're heterosexual, and you spend some time with them, and then there's going to come a moment where you realise that you have uh feelings for them and then the moment will eventually come where you're going to tell them that. And that's a terribly, um, it's a moment of great vulnerability. And in a sense, it's the same when you um, you stick your neck out and, and, and wear your heart on your sleeve in your writing. Uh, but I think in the 80s and 90s, we lived through a time of tremendous cynicism. And I'm not saying that there there weren't terrific books published at that time, But the fashion seemed to be for cynicism and you know as as eloquent or funny or witty acerbic as as that might be sooner or later I think we need the reader needs the species needs somebody to say uh, all jokes aside this is what I believe in this is what I think is important and it might might not change the view of any one reader or any one person but at least it can it has the chance of making the reader feel less alone in his or her beliefs even if they're nascent unarticulated beliefs you know part of the job of the writer can be to say these things for the reader and so the reader feels less alone in feeling them and uh, I don't know. I'm trying to find another word other than empowered, but um, yeah. uh, galvanised to uh, in, in holding these views and even articulating them. Maybe
1: your books have always had that strong, I guess, moral theme throughout them, but the writing style has changed over time. How do you see it as changing?
2: It, it's funny. I'm I, I'm interested that you say that it's changed. I'm not saying it hasn't changed, but it's kind of hard for me to um, to see them objectively. So, um, uh, you know, I, without putting you on the spot, you don't have to answer this, especially, especially since an interview of me. <laughs> but if you, if you want to, I'm curious to know the way you see it having changed.
1: Okay, so I guess in two ways, which I'd love your comment on. The first is that the scope of the stories seems to have got bigger. Um, both in the narrator's voice, but also in terms of the, the concepts and even the variety of settings. Mm-hmm. And also there's been this flowering of numbers of characters in your books. So $3 had three or four key characters. Mm. Seven types of Ambiguity had around just a little bit under 10. And the street sweepers, you've got dozens and a whole lot of extras. <laughs> um, there's been mm-hmm. this kind of increase in the, the scope of your stories, but also in the amount of people who are in those you're a, were they sorry conscious decisions or you're a
2: very astute reader, rose, and I would imagine that um you'd be a you'd be a pretty good teacher of um either creative writing or literature generally or both um everything you just said I've got to agree with, but it, it's not something that i had i was even uh you know when you put it to me i I have to say yes, you're right, but um I mean, yeah, look, obviously I did know that, um, Seven Types and The Street Sweeper are physically bigger, they're longer stories, and they're more complex stories than, uh, well, the short stories by definition, but also, uh, three dollars as well, um, the first novel. Um, I, I suppose to, to a certain extent, you gain a little bit of confidence, um, because you manage to write I mean, here's the way I found it, and I would imagine it's the same for many writers, and it might be the same for you too. Um, At first, um, at first, I wrote secretly. I I was at university, and um, I I was playing in bands, and I didn't mind telling people that I played in a band. And you know, someone would say, "Do you want to meet for a drink or for a coffee?" And I, I had no shame in saying. I'd like to, but I can't. I've got uh, band practice, you know, rehearsal. And they'd say, oh, yeah, okay. And maybe occasionally you'd play a gig and people could come or not. And no one expected that you were going to be, um, you know, Radiohead. Uh, it was all right to just be okay and you were going to try and this seemed like a valid way to spend, you know, some of your time. But it seemed to me, at least the way I felt, that um I couldn't tell anyone... Sorry, I can't meet you for a drink because I'm perfecting a paragraph.
1: <laughs>
2: that that would sound socially, you know, awkward. And so I did it in secret. And so I went from that position, uh, you know, being really quite a serious reader in the sense of somebody that took great interest in what I was reading and how it was written and constructed, and tried to look back on, you know, if I got moved. Okay, how did he or she do that, you know, and uh, going from that position to somebody that secretly in a room, tries doing a little bit of it themselves. And then you get a story published here or there and you think, well, maybe I'm on the right track. And then you get your first novel published and they don't ignore it and you get asked to write more. And your confidence builds and you, you think, I wonder how far I can take this. Um, and, and then you, you, you think, well, I don't know how long this can go on. You know, I have a, another, um, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training and I, I practice as a as a barrister. I have practiced as a barrister. Um, and you're always worried. Anything you do in the arts is precarious and you wonder how far can I take this? Can I make this my career for the rest of my life and support myself this way? Or will I be stopped? And, um, you know, while um, I've been fortunate enough to keep going, I thought, well, maybe I can get a little more ambitious and tackle some themes and issues that are very important to me. And in that respect, you start to plan uh, a wider canvas, if you like. Um, so in in that respect uh, i guess yeah to a certain extent it has to be conscious but it's not conscious in the sense of you know now i will you, you know my my next book could well be um physically smaller and about uh you know something quite um uh, quite finite and quite quite um uh, you know, well, I hope it's important, but but you know, not not anything necessarily on a grand such a grand scale as the street sweeper or even as seven types of ambiguity. It's it's more. I think it's more. Um, and you know, I, I wonder if you feel like this because I happen to know that you're in the middle of writing something. Something catches you, and you and, and I don't know. It's like a piece of music or the taste of something, and you think that's it. That's That's what I want to write about. Do you find that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how much of a role do your characters play in that moment for you? Because they're often quite distinct and quite complex. Do you plan those out before you start writing or do they emerge on the page as well?
2: Some of them emerge a little bit on the page. I I think what happens is that I, I plan the plot and many of the characters sort of appear at that stage and many of them get fleshed out in the writing but um you know they can't take me off on a on a you know it's not like one of them's going to suddenly become an astronaut and take me into outer space when i plan that they're a teacher you know (laughs) so i I don't let them rule me to that extent but uh, in the writing sometimes um layers of their personality get get developed and, and shaped and moulded. But there are certain characters, um, I don't know, for example, Simon in Seven Types of Ambiguity, I I just knew him right from the beginning, I think, before I'd uh, written the first word. I could see him as a, you know, I saw him, and I, I don't know how the reader sees him, as a kind of complex, flawed, but very romantic Uh, you know, capital R romantic as well as small r. I mean, he's romantic with, um, when he's in love with somebody, but also he's so idealistic, um, that he's bound to get hurt and he's bound to therefore become somewhat cynical. And so you've got this, this, um, this cocktail in one person of romance, idealism, cynicism, uh, quite, quite um, high intelligence, all crashing into the realities of life, a life that is not going well at all for him. And um, he, he's going to be in some kind of situation of extremis. And when you get all of that uh, emerging in your mind before you've even written, uh, you know, the first word, you have a pretty good idea of how the character's going to be. So, I mean, that's an example of the character that seemed rather well-formed before I'd started writing the book, but then there are other characters that emerge um, that become much more fully formed and fleshed out in the writing.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure, and I mean, this is just a guess, but based on reading your books, how do you find the writing of your dialogue? Is it something that you particularly enjoy doing?
2: Um, I do, actually, yes. Um, um, Thank you for... talking about that Um, I I do enjoy the dialogue Um, I like trying to I I think it's because maybe I'm a frustrated performer Um, I used to to act a little bit when I was younger and I used to play in bands and everything and now um, I just write the characters I don't actually perform them and so I I really enjoy trying to um, trying trying to write realistic people and capturing the way they speak, and um, yeah that, that can be one of the one of the more enjoyable parts of the whole process
1: it's it's interesting because dialogue is one of the things that a lot of writers struggle with. Um, I think in our courses, we say majority of people aren 't comfortable writing it, but some are. What would your advice be to people who are trying to get their dialogue to come to life
2: I think um to, to To listen a lot when they're out in public or you know with other people um you know almost artificially don't just do it because you're um having a conversation with those people, but you know find yourself um you know in a cafe or a coffee shop or a bar and you know without, without getting into a fight, try to listen in and and the other thing is when when you are sitting there writing um try to be hard on yourself and, and, and write some dialogue between two characters and then say, is this really how people talk? And sometimes you'll have characters that are speaking in a way that not many people do talk, but some do, and you, you they are speaking in a certain way because they are a certain type of character. So the answer to the question, is this how people talk, for this character might be, not many people talk this way, but um, but this person does. Um, so I guess you need to be hard on yourself when you're reading back over your dialogue. And the other thing is if you look at the interaction between, say, two characters, um, just to make it as simple as possible, say it's a conversation between two characters, ask yourself whether uh, they're speaking at all differently. So could if they're in if their dialogue is interchangeable, there's always the possibility um more of a possibility that it's you know you, you, maybe you haven't captured the voice quite quite well enough it's It's hard to give hard and fast rules about this because it's um it's a craft and it's it's quite a delicate thing i I wish I could just say the answer is seven and you always you know program a seven in there and it'll work but you know it's always a matter of judgment and, and really you want to have the best ear possible and to a certain extent some of us are born you know maybe for example more musically gifted than others but you can uh, maximize your own capacities as a writer of dialogue by a doing it a lot and b listening to as many different kinds of people as you can, and see finally, once you have written some dialogue, uh, being quite hard on yourself in your assessment of it.
1: Uh, You spoke before about you know where the ending is of the story. All of your stories end in, without giving anything away, end in finished but still open-ended places. How and when do you choose to end that story?
2: well, I probably choose the way I end it um around the time I'm planning the whole thing. Uh and then that gets back to um something we, we talked about before where I feel like I need to know the, the, the way it's going to end in order to have the confidence that it's worth all the effort I'm putting into it. Um, as to why they end that particular way, um I think life's like that, actually. Most of our lives um, don't end up with an unambiguously uh, terrible thing or fabulous thing happening. Um, Personally, I I like to offer the reader some hope, but I don't want to make it unrealistic. So you're looking to offer hope within the bounds of verisimilitude, you know, within the bounds of a reality that the reader would perceive as true to his or her experience of life. So that that's sort of, um, I guess, as close as I come to having some sort of philosophy on that.
1: Sure. I know that you're out promoting The Street Sweeper* at the moment, but are you working on your next book?
2: No, look, I really...
1: <laughs>
2: I was up at 2.30 in the morning doing an interview um, uh with with america so i i i you know i suffer insomnia anyway at the moment and i've just come back from western australia and in a couple of days i go to adelaide for about 30 hours and the following morning i go to the uk so i really don't have time to uh do anything more than perhaps make notes about the things i'd like to work on next but it's exciting to know that time will be coming
1: And do you have a time when you're going to sit down and work out what the next idea you're going to write is or are you going to let that just evolve as it needs to?
2: Well, I've got certain things that are competing for my attention and it's kind of nice that way because, um, you know, you don't feel fully committed to any one idea yet and they sort of dance before your eyes and say, choose me. But probably the thing I'll work on soonest, um, as soon as I get a chance is... um, in a sense something that's quite uh new to me um and that's it's something collaborative um I, i'm working on a pilot for a comedy television program for a group of musicians called Michelangelo and the Black Sea Gentlemen and um they're they're tremendously talented guys and very funny and i saw them perform live several years ago having heard their music um you know, without seeing them. And having seen them live, I was convinced that these guys are characters in search of a story. And, um, you know, to cut a long story short, we have um, agreed that I will be the person that tries to tell their story in, in a humorous fashion. And that's really quite exciting because, one, it's funny, and, two, it's collaborative. And I spent five and a half years alone in a room, except for the times that I was out, interviewing people, researching for The Street Sweeper which is you know quite a a big and dramatic um, in some places very dark story. So it would be a lot of fun to be working on something that's collaborative and funny uh, with some really talented people.
1: Sure and finally what's your advice to writers?
2: um wow <laughs> my advice to writers generally not on anything specific but just generally
1: you, you can pick a specific topic if you'd like
2: well you, you know what I, I i say and this is um not said flippantly the first thing i say to 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 aspiring writers is this is such a hard thing to do that if you don't really have to do it don't do it because it can hurt you people think that um that sounds overly dramatic, but anyone who's spent enough time writing and wondering whether it's any good and losing perspective when you rewrite and then trying to get a story out there and trying to interest anybody, a reader, an editor, a publisher, knows how heartbreaking it can be. So if you don't absolutely have to do this, uh, you know, other than for maybe some kind of therapy privately then my first piece of advice is do something else my second piece of advice is if you find that you can't do something else that this is a um, uh, it's got you you just can't shake this need to try and write and tell a story then my next piece of advice is try to get something behind you that won't economically humiliate you, because uh, writing is a craft, and the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And you know, w- what if I were to tell you, Rose, that you know you're a writer, you're 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 working on something, and you are going to be incredibly successful. In fact, you're going to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. You'll be the first person after Patrick White. But here's the catch. You're not going to get published at all till you're 49. You're going to write a number of books, uh, you know, novels that will all be rejected, and you're going to feel like giving up. And while all of your friends and contemporaries have gone from crappy jobs to um, you know better jobs and better cars and better flats and apartments and finally a house, and you're still waiting tables to support your writing habit you know, the chances are you'll be so hurt by what the writing is doing to you that you'll quit. And then you've robbed yourself and the world of those novels that are going to win you the Nobel Prize. So if you can get something behind you and find a way to coexist between the writing world and everybody else's world, you've got more of a chance of being successful because you'll be able to keep going longer without being burned by the whole process. So that's um, my other piece of general advice.
1: Thank you. That's that's wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, Elliot.
2: My absolute pleasure. Thank you for your wonderful questions.
0: ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.